Gracious God, thank you for your grace and your faithfulness. Thank you for remaining with us and continuing to lead us as we seek to be faithful and connected during this time. We pray that you would bless our study of Daniel chapter one, and that the study of this text would really come alive for us, not just as a church, but as individuals. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. Now, to give you a little preview of what we're doing today, we're just going to take it chapter by chapter, at least until we get to Daniel chapter eight, and we might have to take the latter half in chunks, um, but we're going to study Daniel chapter one, and that might take us for the full hour, but if we still have some space, I might then um, splice in a New Testament text that deals with similar issues so we can do a little compare and contrast. So I'm going to start by reading verses 1 through 7 of chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of King Joachim, uh, you know, I could pronounce this, uh, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, there you go, King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall into his power, as well as some of the vessels of the house of God. These he brought to the land of Shinar and placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods. Then the king commanded his palace master Ashpenaz to bring some of the Israelites of the royal family and of the nobility, young men without physical defect and handsome versed in every branch of wisdom, endowed with knowledge and insight, and competent to serve in the king's palace. They were to be taught the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the royal rations of food and wine. They were to be educated for three years, so that at the end of that time, they could be stationed in the king's court. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Ezariah from the tribe of Judah. The palace master gave them other names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. And Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Okay, I'm just going to go ahead and stop there so that we can uh, break this down into chunks. So King uh, Jehoiakim, he was the king of Judah from 609 to 598 B.C., and essentially, he was the king of Judah whenever it was sacked by King Nebuchadnezzar. And one of the things that Daniel and other places in scripture make very plain is that the Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall into his power. Um, the Lord allowed this. Now, last week, we studied the covenant in Deuteronomy. And you remember that the deal was that if the people obeyed, that they would live long in the land and be blessed. But if they failed to obey, that a, niche, a nation would swoop in like an eagle and, um, and that this would not be a good experience. And so here, in the people self-understanding, the Lord is letting this happen as a result of the people's disobedience. I think that, just want to bracket that, um, um, because I think that's a modern-day question, right? Does God cause bad things to happen? Does God allow bad things to happen? 
um, what is that relationship between God's providence and these world shattering events like nations swooping in and destroying your temple? And not just that, but they go to the temple and they take out all the vessels. And these were valuable, valuable things and brought them to the land of Shinar and placed them in the vessels in the treasury of his gods. Now, you know, we're going to get into this in Daniel chapter five. Um, this is going to resurface these vessels that have been carried over to the king's palace. But needless to say, for the holy things of God to be taken out of the temple and placed alongside pagan idols, this is a crisis in and of itself. This is a, a desolating sacrifice. I mean, this is a horrible, horrible thing to happen. And the people would have felt the great shame of this moment. Um, but, you know, King of Babylon does what kings do, and they're getting on with their business. And he's got a palace master named Ashpenaz, and uh, he is told to bring some of the Israelites to the royal family and of the nobility. And they're looking for the best and the brightest, the Harvard graduates, people who look good, the athletes. You know, they're kind of taking the cream of the crop. And we're told they're educated for three years. So they're kind of sent to Babylonian seminary. And their job is to be assimilated into Babylonian culture and to serve at the palace of the king. So we can, care, we can compare this verse with what it says, for instance, in 2 Kings 24, verse 14, where it says, he, that's Nebuchadnezzar, carried all Jerusalem into exile, all the officers and the fighting men and all the skilled workers and artisans, a total of 10,000. Only the poorest people of the land were left. And so essentially what they did was come in and they took all the treasure, not just the gold from the temple, but also the human capital, the people who could make their economy work. They took away the people who were skilled and basically the poor, the crippled, the desolate, they were left behind in Jerusalem. Uh, and so it was kind of the uh, prominent people who were carried away and given an opportunity to find their way and assimilate into this new economy and to worship this new king. So that's just a historical fact that you need to know about the exile. It was the poor people who were left behind, and uh, Jehoiakim would have still been the king of Judah as a vassal uh, to King Nebuchadnezzar, but he really wouldn't have had any perks. He would have just been there with you know, trying to, to deal with the starving poor people left behind. Um, so they are to be educated for three years. Now, we're told that they are given other names. Um, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more, but a name in the Bible is not just a name. Um, it's very, very subtle, but to be given a name is to be given an identity. So we recall that God often changes people's names. Abram becomes Abraham. Saul becomes Paul. Um, you know, Peter, you are Cephas, and on this rock I will build my church. God is always giving us <laughs> a name. And uh, there's a subtle question here, which is who or what? will we allow to name us? Uh, what is our true name before God? In fact, we can look at Revelation chapter two, where there's this great verse where God gives each person a white stone, and on that stone is a new name 
that God has written that no one knows what's on that stone except the one who gives it and the one who receives it. There's this intimate gesture between us and God where we are given our true name. And so to have these Babylonians give the Israelites new names is to basically say, you're ours now. Uh, your identity is tied to us, not to your God. And uh, you're going to assimilate and you're going to be part of our tribe. Uh, will you go along with that? And so kind of a question that we can ask is who or what will we let name us throughout our life? Now, I'm going to go ahead and pause there and just see what questions or comments you have about what I've said or uh, verses one through seven. Jackie? I have some notes from a, a previous study of Daniel, and I was reviewing them uh, right before this and said the, the language of the court of the Chaldeans was Aramaic, that that was the lingua franca of the Middle East of the sixth century. Uh, everyone who engaged in commerce or trade or, or uh, around the court. So uh, Daniel, the book of Daniel is unique in that it's written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. That's, that's correct. And um, uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, when I say I don't know, like I literally don't know. Um, I don't know about um, the Greek portions. I mean, those certainly would have been uh, second century BC editions. Um, but um, so I think that's probably sounds about accurate. Um, but uh, it's certainly written in Hebrew and Aramaic and Aramaic as a language came into being after the exile. And it certainly was a result of Israel mingling with the other nations, which was inevitable once, you know, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans all rule over them. Your language is going to shift a bit. So all of that is accurate. And Jesus would have spoken Aramaic. Um, you know, it seems like, um, well, a couple, couple of observations. One, I can't, I was trying to find it in the, the Bible, which book it's in, but it's a bit, one of the books starts with, I have called you by name, you are mine. Mm -hmm. Or I, I know, I knew you before I formed you in the womb. And so that naming is just such a personal connection to God and for somebody to just willy-nilly, you know, rename me, um, you know, it, it's a harsh change. Um, uh, and then the other thing, I was just thinking of something more um, aligned with today. And in our, you know, in this story, the poor were left behind in our culture. We are, you know, <laughs> we are really leaving, leaving the poor um, and less educated people behind economically, and they're not being brought alongside with us. And it just resonated with me. That's, that's really an issue that needs to be tended to. Yeah, thank you for that. So to your comments, one is that verse that you reference is from the very beginning of the book of Jeremiah, when God calls the prophet Jeremiah. What's interesting, Barbara, about that connection is that the book of Jeremiah is about the Babylonian exile. So not all the prophets are about the Babylonian exile. Jeremiah is. Jeremiah is about this exile. And so this idea of God telling Jeremiah, you know, I have called you by name. Before you were born, 
uh, I knew you. I formed you in your mother's womb, right? To have God speak that over Jeremiah and then to kind of see this story where this, you know, silly Babylonian palace master thinks he gets to give these people new names and new identity. You know, the Bible is meant to kind of like hold those alongside each other and to see the powerful name God gives God's children compared to the rinky dinky names that the world always seeks to give us. And for us to see that and to say, oh, actually Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, that's not my real name, you know? And what we're going to find is that they go along with it because there's this nuanced thing where, you know, they have to decide where can I play ball and where can I just like, where, where do I have to resist? They can't resist everything and they can't play ball with everything. So they go along with the names, but in their hearts, what allows them to be so faithful is that they have the sense of what their real name is. Um, and I just want to affirm what you said about the poor in the land. We could certainly tease that out, but I just want to, to, to affirm and to say that that's a, um, an apt comparison. Mary? Um, I was thinking too, with respect to the naming, um, naming, if, if I give you the name, I have the power over you. And when we talk about that Jeremiah verse, God gives us a name because he knows us. He knows our identity and we then hopefully are growing into it. That's how we are living our lives. When a person gives another person a name, sort of like people and slaves, perhaps, you are, you're trying to define their identity by naming them, but, but we don't have that knowledge of what that real identity is, which is what I think allows what you just then talked about to play. You've given me a name, but so what? I'll, I'll continue on because I'm, I'm who I am, not who you call me. So I think it is really, it, it shows, it gets into how power, uh, the, the knowledge of power and a power and a non-pastoral relationship, but who's above who, but really what's underneath it is the identity, the truth. And that's what God has for us. Somebody else doesn't. Really, really good. I mean, just two, two points there to tease out with names. Names are about identity, right? What is our core identity? Because our true name is tied to our true identity. But, but there's also a power and authority. Only someone with power and authority can truly name us. And what we often see in this world uh, are people kind of exercising power in a phony way where they have structural power over you. And if you, you know, it's subtle, but there are instances where people give others kind of like demeaning nicknames. So, you know, I was in a fraternity in college and, um, and I, I, that was a, a fine experience. There were pros and cons to that experience, you know, blessings, but also a shadow to it. But one of the things I remember from that first year was we all got, you know, kind of demeaning nicknames, right? There was a naming of us, like an asserting of, uh, authority and kind of a re like let's kind of shift your identity here so that you kind of fit in with what we're doing and so the idea of naming someone is often uh, an expression of authority whether it's legitimate authority um, or illegitimate authority the lording of power over somebody Gail they were trying to uphold um, the law, correct? I mean, as much as they could. And maybe there's nothing, in, I don't know the law well enough, that the changing of names they did tolerate because knowing the Old Testament or the Torah, 
maybe, right? They would know about Abram and Sarah and all the rest of them. So that wasn't foreign to them. And it wasn't as, um, that was one of the reasons it was easier for them to go along to get along with that. The name change? I don't know. I, and I don't, I, I, it has been a while since I've come through Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy to know the ins and the outs, but I don't recall any like specific stuff about names in there off the top of my head. Like they follow the, the laws of, uh, of their food. Right, which we'll get to in a bit. That was really serious for them. Jack? It hadn't struck me before until we were, you were reading this, these verses that we remember Daniel's three friends by their Babylonian names. I mean, everyone can recite Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and it had never occurred to me before that these were not their Hebrew names, and I, I tried sounding out the Hebrew names, and they don't have quite the same <laughs> rhythm, uh, uh, don't fit the song quite as well, but but you know, I just thought it was interesting that we know these friends by their by their Babylonian names, not their Hebrew. I didn't recognize any of their Hebrew names, and I just I don't know. Yeah. It kind of made me sad. Yeah, I hear you. All right, let's go ahead and look at. Um, let's go ahead and finish. It's a short chapter. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the royal rations of food and wine. So he asked the palace master to allow him not to defile himself. Now, God allowed Daniel to receive favor and compassion from the palace master. The palace master said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king. He has appointed your food and your drink. If he should see you in poorer condition than the other young men your age, you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel asked the guard whom the palace master had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. You can then compare our appearance with the appearance of the young men who eat the royal rations and deal with your servants according to what you observe. So he agreed to this proposal and he tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was observed that they appeared better and fatter than all the young men who had been eating the royal rations. So the guard continued to withdraw their royal rations and the wine they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and skill in every aspect of literature and wisdom. Daniel also had insight into all visions and dreams. At the end of the time that the king had set for them to be brought in, the palace master brought them into the presence of Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among them all, no one was found to compare with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they were stationed in the king's court. And every matter of wisdom and understanding concerning with which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel continued there until the first year of King Cyrus. Okay, just a few things here. So there's a tension, right? So Daniel will take the name. Um, uh, he can, 
Belteshazzar, you know, fine. You want to call me Belteshazzar, call me Belteshazzar. But when it comes to the food, you know, scripture is pretty clear. He says, I can't eat this stuff. And uh, we recall the covenant from Deuteronomy uh, 30 that we studied last week, where God calls them to be holy as he is holy. And one of the ways they understood this was with their diet. And Daniel thinks that if he eats this stuff, he will defile himself. And so the point isn't so much about what to eat, what not to eat. The larger point being made is that Daniel's chief commitment is to wanting to be holy or set apart as he believes God has asked him to be. Uh, And so he's going to find a way to be faithful to God in this foreign land. And even though he's going to compromise in some places, you know, he'll study all the wisdom of the Babylonians and he'll be smarter than everyone else when it comes to his diet and some other things, he's not going to budge. And so he approaches the palace master and the palace master really kind of goes out on a limb for Daniel. Um, We don't really know much about this person, but Daniel finds favor with this person because the palace master really, as he says, puts his own head at risk by doing this little experiment. But nevertheless, for some reason, he does. And after 10 days of vegetables and water, you know, no wine, no royal rations, uh, Daniel and his friends are fatter than all the young men who had been eating the royal rations. And, you know, just a good reminder that every culture has different um, body types that they prefer. And in this one, uh, the the better. And so you don't want to be lean. You want to be... Uh, to have a a full figure, and Daniel eats these vegetables, and uh, that is exactly what happens. Um, Now, I want you to note some comparisons. We haven't studied Joseph, but there are some comparisons between Joseph and Daniel. Um, Joseph, like Daniel, is living in a foreign land and serving a foreign king, and in order to kind of navigate things, He needs really two things that God provides, favor and wisdom. And without those two things, Daniel will not survive. He needs favor, which is expressed with this palace master kind of giving him a shot and this test he sets up working out in his favor. But he also needs wisdom to navigate what's coming in the future. So the big day comes and they are presented in front of King Nebuchadnezzar. And after the king questions them, uh, basically Daniel stands out as the MVP. He and his friends are, you know, the top four in the class, the valedictorian. Um, and so the king stations them in his court. And so you have this ironic situation where they are stationed to serve in the court of the king of Babylon, when in reality, their identity is to be a servant of the king of heaven. And the larger question being raised is, how will they navigate this? Now, we know in verse 21 that things are going to work out fine for Daniel because he's going to continue where he is until the first year of King Cyrus. And this is Cyrus the Great. This was the Persian ruler who in time would conquer the Babylonians. And so Daniel's going to have a long tenure And we're told that in verse 21. So there's not going to be a lot of um, 
uh, suspense as to whether or not Daniel's going to be okay. But um, we do get a sense for the challenge that awaits him. How is it that I'm faithful to God uh, in this foreign land? And so um, that's Daniel chapter one. Now, two questions we can ask, and I'm not going to say that we have to spend all our time talking about these questions, but I do want to set up some questions for us for you to think about. Um, the first is that the book of Daniel starts with God's people living in exile. And a question I have for us is what virtues or beliefs or practices are needed in order for us to live faithfully in a culture that is often oriented around values that are not always the same values that Jesus has. And so Barbara mentioned, you know, our tendency as human beings to live, leave the poor behind. Um, that would just be one example of how the values of a culture might not align with the values of a follower of Jesus. So how do we navigate that? And then another question would be that an attempt is made to assimilate Daniel and his friends as Babylonians. And we might consider in what ways does the society and culture in which we live apply similar pressure and how might Christians maintain a distinct identity as followers of Jesus today without completely separating ourselves from uh, the people around us. So I'll go ahead and put those questions in the, in the chat so you can see them. And we don't have to spend our time on those two questions, but I do think that they are the questions that Daniel chapter one raises. All right, I'm gonna stop there. Jackie. Well, the first thing I wondered was how you got fat on vegetables and water, but um, that that thought aside, I, I remember um, I had a student who clearly had ADHD and I had him last period of the day and he was literally bouncing off the walls and his father was determined that he not take any medication for this condition because he had heard that the medication stunted growth and he wanted his son to be a basketball player. His son was four foot two. Anyway, um, I, I remember saying that he wasn't gonna get to play basketball if he didn't pass eighth grade. And I, I struck the same bargain that Daniel did. I said, well, why don't we try the medication for two months and then meet again and see where we stand, what we think, you know? And, and so I, I think that sometimes when people at first seem totally unwilling to compromise from a, a position 180 degrees away, sometimes you can find a middle ground, which is what Daniel seems to be trying very hard to do to fit into this culture and still remain a, a faithful Jew, but but it's not easy. And and uh, I didn't realize I was following a, a biblical example here, but it worked. And the kid took his medication and passed eighth grade. I don't know if he ever played basketball, but. Great story. 
Yeah, thank you for that. Memes. Well, one one quick point to that end of Jackie's about, you know, I know it was a joke, but how they gain all the weight eating vegetables. The point being made is that this is a work of God, right? That's, that is the whole point. This is a work of God, that they have God's favor, that God is with them, and that this isn't a natural thing. Um, okay. Following the laws. I was just going to say, probably the meat was not processed in a kosher manner. And at that time, they did have the law on how meat was supposed to be prepared before people ate it. So my, I would just assume they were trying to avoid paganly processed meat. Well, actually, that's true. Uh, another thing I want to add, which if we have time today, we're going to see Paul's take on this in Romans, because this was still a first century issue. Um, it was also offered to the gods of Babylon. Right. Right. So, you know, this, you know, we go to HEB and, you know, you, you would just be nuts if you ask the person selling you a New York strip, you know, has this been offered to any deity? And they'd, they'd be like, what? Wh which meat do you want? Like, no, it's just a steak. Um, but, you know, back in the day, um, meat was slaughtered as part of a religious ceremony uh, and usually given uh, in honor or to propitiate some deity. And so for Daniel and his friends, the answer is off limits. You know, even if these royal rations fall within what we could eat, uh, we don't trust, you know, the God it's been offered to. And, you know, Paul is going to have a little bit of a different take for first century Christians trying to figure out whether or not they can eat meat because they had the same issue of it being offered to all sorts of pagan gods. Jackie, that example is really perfect uh, of not having cheerleading practice on a Sunday morning because that's church time and everyone being mad at you. I mean, that's that's a modern day example of kind of this question. Like, what's, you know, what is it that can't be on the table? Um, you know, so in the 1950s, 60s, no one would have ever suggested in a million years that anyone do anything on a Sunday morning because that was time universally agreed for church but then there's been a shift in the culture and now I mean we've had a lot of social changes um, you know many families you know have both parents working they're exhausted you know they've got stuff going on on Saturday maybe Sunday's the day to sleep in or maybe because everyone's so overscheduled Sunday's the day to do soccer or baseball and, you know, I actually don't have a judgment on that. Um, you know, I, I understand the position of like, this is life, so let's do our best. I also understand the position that says, nope, church is on Sunday, make your choices. But um, it, to me, it's a more of a question of, it used to be that say Sunday morning worship was one of those identity markers, you know, so for Daniel, it was food. But that Sunday morning worship was an identity marker that said, under no circumstances can this be um, on the table for removing. But now everything's kind of on the table. And so it raises this larger question as Christians who live, move, have our being uh, in a world dominated by secular values. And again, I don't say that with any anger. It's just kind of a fact. It's a secular world. What are the identity markers that we can't compromise on. In other words, what's our food? 
and what's our name? You know, we'll, we'll accept this name over here, but we're not going to bend on the food. What's the modern day equivalent of that for us? Great. Okay. Give an answer. I just, um, I was thinking as Jackie gave that example, um, I had written down some of my own little quick answers to the reflection questions. And um, her example shows two of them is that how, how do you, what virtues do we need in order to live faithfully in a culture that's different? Number one, I put confidence in identity and then faith. And the other is a core values being a true part of our identity. And I think that's where Jackie, by responding, um, was answering or indicating that. I think um, whether they changed their mind on the time or they didn't, the further piece is then how does she then react? Um, because I think that that's where sometimes it, the, the best way to be different is to do it with respect and humility. Um, there's, I don't have a right answer to what you do if they hadn't changed it, but I think that I, I love that example just because it was speaking to me with what we've just been talking about. Yeah, thank you for that. Well, that, that was, that was a wonderful comment. Um, so I want to hold all of that and I'm going to read something really quickly because this question of, okay, what are the identity markers? Um, you know, we're not too worried about what we eat. We don't lose sleep over that. But this question of how do we remain faithful to God in a culture that, you know, uh, might have different values, that's a lie for us. So let's now read um, a passage from Romans where Paul is actually dealing with a similar issue of food. But again, this is not really about food. This comes from Romans 14. He says, welcome those who are weak in the faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. Some believe in eating anything while the weak eat only vegetables. Those who eat must not despise those who abstain and those who abstain cannot pass judgment on those who eat for God has welcomed them. Who are you to pass judgment on servants of another? It's before their own Lord that they stand or fall and they will be upheld for the Lord can make them stand. I'm going to skip this here. Let us therefore no longer pass judgment on one another, but resolve instead never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of another. I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for the person who thinks it's unclean. If your brother or sister is being injured by what you eat, you are not walking in love. Do not let what you eat cause the ruin of one for whom Christ died. Don't let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The one who thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and has human approval. Everything is clean, but it is wrong for you to make others fall by what you eat. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything if it makes your brother or sister stumble. The faith that you have, have as your own conviction before God. Blessed are those who have no reason to condemn themselves because of what they approve. But those who have doubts are condemned if they eat because they do not act from faith or whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Okay, so this is a little bit of a tricky passage, but if you can't tell from the background, 
there's a little bit of an issue of whether or not we can eat certain things. This is the same tension that Daniel and his friends are dealing with. You know, they're not in the royal court. They're just trying to make it in first century Roman society, but they have a lot of issues as to what they can and cannot eat, not necessarily because they're tied to the food laws of Leviticus, perhaps in the same way that Daniel was, but rather because certain things have been offered to idols, or at least they could have. And essentially what Paul says, uh, or at least how I read it is, you know, it doesn't matter what you eat. Um, everything is clean in and of itself. However, you still have a moral choice here to make based on A, whether it comes from faith, and B, whether or not it causes your brother to stumble and whether or not you're walking in love. Uh, and so I'm going to kind of pause there. I can put the passage back up, but we see Paul's take on this question of identity markers. And one of the things we notice is that Paul doesn't seem so concerned about these specific decisions we make. Note what he says, I'm convinced that there's nothing unclean in and of itself. Rather, he seems to be concerned with how we make that decision and what impact it has on our brothers and sisters. All right, so your comments and reactions to that. Uh, Mary, let's go with you and then Jack. It's a quick one. I think we actually as a church learned a little bit about an identity marker and had to look at our own truth. And that has to do with worship and worship time and worship together and the sacrament of communion. And with the pandemic, we were faced with a new reality and it's how we went ahead with it and stayed true to our identity and true to our faith. You as a pa as our pastor helped remind us many times at that front end of a communion, those of us sitting at home, we were as, as part of the communion as others and that only one piece is needed that not everyone knows. So it, to me, that hits really on a lot of this. Uh, if, you, if you think it's not okay to not be in church, then it's not. But that's not really where it is if we understand what it is and know that God is there with us. And because we believe and follow, we are good in good stead. Mary, I really appreciate that comment because if you had asked, you know, people casually 13 months ago, well, like what's the heart of St. Michael's? Um, I don't know what people would have said, but you would have had some people say, well, we kind of do these breakfast tacos once a month. We got two main services and we kind of joke, but I'm a nine or I'm an 11 o'clock person. You know, we have this kind of history. We have some odd traditions that we've come up with ourselves, and we kind of like them and they're quirky, but we do them anyway. I mean, we would have had these things that we listed that said, this is what St. Michael's is. And then boom, pandemic comes. We don't do any of those things. And yet, are we not St. Michael's? Are we not St. Michael's right now? You know, I get chills asking the question because I know we're St. Michael's. And so clearly like that, which we thought was so central to our identity was really kind of like window dressing, important window dressing. We'll get it back, but not the core of who we are. Jackie. Well, I, my local son-in-law's father is a practicing alcoholic and um, my son-in-law has worried about this because he he feels like uh, he has kind of an addictive personality. When he would drink, sometimes he didn't seem to know when to stop. So he made the choice to not, uh, not drink anything. So when we go 
have a meal at their house or gather at their house, there's there's no wine or, or other alcohol offered. And he knows that, that Michael and I uh, drink, but we don't drink when we're at his house or, or with him. Uh, I don't think he would care so much, but it's just a way of helping him, respecting his choice, because for us, we can take it or leave it. For him, it seems a risk to, to do. And it, I've always thought of him when I read this passage in, in Romans and, and, uh, and how we make decisions trying to support other people. That's a great example. You know, nothing wrong with wine, not unclean in and of itself. But if you drink it in a situation where it causes your brother or sister to stumble, you're not walking in love, right? And so that's a great example. You well, know, I, I love so, and, and that also shows that that's it, it occurs to me, you know, and, and um, thinking through this passage, you know, let each be convinced in his or her own mind welcome those who are weak in the faith. I and mean, that's just really Paul's way of not saying that there's like, you're the strong people, you're the weak people, but like welcome those whom you perceive as having a faith that's weaker or different than your own, who take up a different stance. Uh, he says, nothing is unclean in and of itself. Uh, don't do something if it means, you know, causing a brother or sister to stumble. You know, what if this were the text that we all studied as a society three months before a presidential election. You know, there is nothing unclean, Paul says, about having values that align with the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. But if you tout those in a way that causes your brother or sister to stumble, you are not walking in love. Let each be fully convinced in his or her own mind. Welcome the weak in faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. You know, so the, the context in which Paul writes, it's about food. It's about what you can and cannot eat. But all we have to do is read it and look at it and like have a conversation to realize, oh, this isn't really about food. This isn't about food at all. This is about life and about learning and ethic where it's not about like a hard commandment, a do or don't do in all situations, but rather about embracing a faith that has the well-being of the other um, as a guiding principle and other who very well might differently than you do. You know, Paul understood some of his people would never, ever touch meat from the pagan marketplace. And he knew that some of his people would be the first one there, you know, to buy the premium steak. And so rather than saying like, here's the position of our community, you know, sign on the dotted light, we eat meat or we don't eat meat. He basically said, um, who are you to pass judgment on the servants of another? You know, it's before your own Lord that you stand or fall. Just walk in love and uh, whatever you do, do it in faith and don't cause your brother or sister to stumble. And so I just think that's a very relevant message today and really uh, applicable to this conversation about how it is that we're to live in a secular culture and what that chief identity marker is to be for God's people. It's, it's to be love. Okay. Uh, just along that same line, 
I thought, although we and others use other people's identity markers to judge them, I just decided right now that it's really, they exist for us. Um, say more about that. Sorry, my daughter just popped in, but they exist for us, for our own self-identification and for our own boundaries that we need for ourselves as, but although we do use them to categorize other people. Yeah, so Paul says in uh, first or second Corinthians, we have this treasure in clay vessels. The clay vessels are the identity markers. The treasures, the Christ, right? So what's our clay vessel? And let me be clear, I love our clay vessels. I love our book of common prayer. I love our vestry and our music and our, you know, um, right one and right two or, and whatever it is. I mean, that, that we think of that says, this is kind of like what Episcopalians are about. I love those, but I'm also really clear that they're not the treasure, that they are the clay vessel in which we have been given to hold this treasure. And that it's not our job to judge people who have a clay vessel that looks a little bit different from our own. Jackie. I found it somewhat ironic that in this passage from Romans, it's the weak people who eat vegetables, whereas in Daniel, it's the strong. So. No, absolutely. So here's here, here is how Paul would interpret this passage if he were talking to Daniel and his choice of not to eat vegetables, right? I, I think that Paul would say, well, Daniel, if you're choosing not to eat these because you know you're scared that that's that god's going to be upset and you're just really really timid well you're kind of weak in your faith because god has given us a boldness as people who believe in the death and resurrection of jesus christ and you should be more confident but then paul would say but daniel if you're abstaining from eating this food because of shadrach meshach and abednego they look to you as a leader and and you know, you know that they might stumble or that people are watching you about what does it mean to be faithful? If you made it on the basis of that decision, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. Um, you're an inspiration to God's people. So again, Paul would say, why'd you make the decision? Why'd you eat the food? And it's a really, you know, fascinating view of morality. Okay, everybody, I want to thank y'all for a really lively discussion. And um, We'll just keep journeying through Daniel and these conversations together. We got some some great stories coming up and we'll uh, we'll keep staying at it and see what we learn together.